It's good to be with you guys. We have a full church today, and that's always real encouraging that people have fought the colds and some of the flu and the body aches and the cold temperatures and, and all of the different things that, that nail us every day, and you've all come down here to worship Jesus, and that's, that's really amazing. We have new people with us today. We welcome you, but it's good to be in the house of the Lord. Amen? Definitely. Well, let's get into this thing. Nearly uh, about a year ago, we began a teaching series through the book of Acts entitled, You Will Be My Witnesses. Um, we literally started it, I think, the second week of March, so we're coming up on a year now. Uh, nine weeks ago, we actually kind of hit pause on the series uh, to focus on Christmas and New Year's and like core things like leadership and, and membership, all these things that we've been talking about over the last eight or nine weeks. And uh, this morning, we're going to re-engage in our series, uh, so I'm pretty stoked about that. Um, I, I really, as a Bible teacher, would prefer to have like a book that I'm teaching through and passages and being led by the Spirit that way instead of like having a topic and trying to find stuff to support it. I don't like that. I used to teach like that all the time, and it was the only thing I knew, and I was really comfortable with it. Well, trying to do it over the last nine weeks was just, it was tough. So I'm really excited to be back in our, in our Acts study. I, I need to, before we kind of get into our next section... I need to kind of refresh our memories, and, and, and then there's some folks here that are new that weren't with us before when we were in it, so I need to kind of bring the context uh, back before us, before we really sort of re-engage. Nine weeks ago, we were on Acts 9.26 to 31. Uh, we left off at 9.31 is where we left off. Uh, in that passage, you may recall if you look at the Word of God and read it yourself, uh, we learned that Saul, the former persecutor of the Christian church, had been, uh, you know, prior to that, he had been transformed and changed into about three years worth of ministry and stuff in Damascus and, and beyond. But he actually, in the passage that we studied last time, 926 to 31, he actually came to the Jerusalem church for the first time as a new believer. And he had a really, really bad experience when he came back and, and announced that he was a Christian and you know, that he'd been serving the Lord and preaching the gospel and, you know, to the east and, and, or to the west and what have you. And he was pretty well rejected when he came to the brothers at Jerusalem. Uh, for a number of reasons, they just uh, did not believe his testimony. And, and there's some pretty good reason why. I mean, he was a really, really uh, strong uh, opponent to the Christian church, probably the first real persecutor, I'd say. Um, and he just brought just a lot of pain and suffering and violence and imprisonment and things to the lives of believers, especially in Jerusalem. In fact, his persecution caused the church to scatter throughout the whole region. And so there were some pretty decent reasons why the brothers at, you know, at Jerusalem were hesitant to accept him. Um, and if you go back and listen to that sermon, you'll find that there are a lot more reasons than just the fear of what he could do. But it was really, really encouraging to us. But he was pretty much held at bay for a number of reasons, they would not allow him to join the fellowship there. But a man named Barnabas, I have to be careful because I usually call him Barabbas. And uh, every preacher that's ever preached on Barnabas ends up preaching about 45 minutes on Barabbas. And it's like, man, the guy that they let loose at the end, he was a pretty good guy. Yeah, he was a great, no, wait a minute. You know, so we always screw that up. But there was a, there was a, a good dude amongst them, a guy who didn't have fear of who he was, a guy who was really well grounded in in Jesus and in the gospel and his identity, security, value, those things were in Christ. He didn't fear what Saul could do to him, per se. And he took a chance 
and met with Saul. And he became convinced that Saul was a true convert, that he was a true man of God. He assessed his life, um, his testimony, and he became convinced. And then he brought Saul before, because Barnabas was very respected, he brought um, Saul before the apostles at Jerusalem church and pleaded a case for him and said, this guy's legit, man. And so they accepted him. And once Saul was accepted, he began to visit um, his former colleagues, his former persecutors of the church, those Hellenistic leaders at those Hellenistic synagogues. And he began to go into these synagogues just as Stephen we learned about. Stephen did this. He went into those same places that Stephen preached the gospel. Keep in mind, he was the one that put Stephen to death. But he went into those same places and proclaimed the gospel to all his, his, old, his old cronies and his old colleagues. And, and they immediately recognized that he was not one of them any longer and turned against him. And, you know, over a period of about 15 days, he was only in Jerusalem for about 15 days, um, his colleagues went from the level of rejecting his gospel presentation to wanting to kill him and plotting to kill him. And, and putting together this strategy to sort of get him and, and kill him and do to him what he had done to Stephen. When the Jerusalem brothers learned of this, they took Saul away to Caesarea and then to Tarsus. They put him on a boat and sent him up to Tarsus, way up north, which was his former homeland. Um, after Saul left the scene, after he left the community, the area, Luke wrote that the church experienced a time of peace and growth. We saw that in 931, our last verse of focus, nine weeks ago. Uh, now, in our passage today, beginning with verse 32, Luke shifts the storyline off of Saul because he's out of the picture. He's away, spending time with Jesus, growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. He's a tent maker. He's also doing some ministry up in that community, as we'll learn about a little later. Um, but for the most part, while he was removed, the church experienced peace and growth and all of these things. And our passage at verse 32, where it begins... Luke literally shifts off of like the narrative that includes Saul back onto Peter, who dominated most of the who's dominated most of the book of Acts so far. You have the preaching at Pentecost and all of these things, and we just heard a passage where it was the healing of the lame beggar, and these were all kind of Peter-focused ministry things and stuff. So Luke is shifting away from Saul for a moment, and he's shifting back onto Peter. And in our text, beginning with our text, Luke lists several examples of how the church experienced peace and growth. He, you know, at 31, at basically verse 31, he says the church went through this amazing period of peace and growth. And then at verse 32, he begins to, he shifts back onto Peter. Then he begins to articulate, draw out these incredible examples of what, what the church experienced. So it's really, really exciting. Now, these examples uh, that he gives, there's really four primary ones and they cover a large section of scripture that basically spans from 932 to 1126. Okay, so this is a big section. We're going to be in this section for a while exploring, expounding on, and applying the principles and things of these examples. What are the examples that we're going to be exposed to? Uh, first is the healing of, it looks like Aeneas, but it's pronounced Aeneas. The healing of Aeneas, that's one of the first things that he draws out for us. That's 9.32 to 35. That's what we'll focus on today. And then you have the resurrection of Tabitha. Um, or her name is Dorcas. Uh, uh, you know, there's weird names in the Bible. You've got Gomer, 
you know, uh, that's a chick, and that's bizarre. Then you have Dorcas. Can you imagine going through high school with the name of Dorcas? I mean, they, would, they just have to call you by name to be insulting you. Hey, Dorcas, you know, <laughs> right? But her name was Dorcas, I guess, or translated Tabitha. I don't know which is worse. Tabitha? Has, any, has anyone ever known anyone named Tabitha? That's kind of an interesting name. All right, I don't want to be offensive to you if you have a friend or relative named Tabitha. Do you know anyone named Dorcas? Do you know anyone named Nimrod? There's another one, right? How about Gomer? Right? Can you imagine a woman named Gomer? Yeah, exactly. Go right to that, that Nimrod. Yeah, holy. The dumb show. But anyways, so this, 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 this gal, Tabitha, she was resurrected through the ministry of Peter. That's 936 to 43. And she was an outstanding woman of the Lord. She feared the Lord and served him faithfully. We get to that in the coming weeks. And then you have the conversion of Cornelius. There's another interesting name, Cornelius. He was a Roman centurion. And, uh, and through that whole conversion of Cornelius, many Gentiles in Caesarea were also saved. That's 10, 1 to 48. Uh, that's a massive section that's devoted to Cornelius, and it's such a key passage in all of Scripture because it is literally the transition. What we've seen basically through Acts is we've seen the gospel presented to Jews, we've seen the gospel presented to half-Jews, Hellenists, and when we transition to Cornelius, we see the gospel presented to full-blown Gentiles. And so there's this transition in how the gospel moved throughout this region through Palestine, whatever you want to call the region, uh, I don't know, whatever else we want to call it. So it's really interesting. So that's key, that's huge. And then we have another example, the last one we'll see, and that's the conversion of many Hellenists. So it's like, okay, boom, we see the conversion of a lot of Gentiles in Caesarea, and then bam, we come back to Hellenists in the region of Antioch, and that's 1119 to 26. So those are the kind of the areas that we'll be focusing on in the coming weeks, really excited about that. But today... We are focused on 932 to 35, the healing of Aeneas. I'm going to read the text and pray one more time, and then we'll begin to examine and apply it together. You guys ready? Are you, are you stoked? I don't see much stokeness happening on your faces. Too much stokeness. Okay. It's good. All right. 32 to 35, chapter 9, the healing of Aeneas. And I read from the ESV and study the ESV and believe only in the ESV. Just kidding. Um, and you should change. Uh, now, as Peter went here and there among them all. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all. It says, he came down also to the saints who lived in, that's pronounced Luda. Like Ludacris. No, not really. Like Luda, right? It's not Lida. I've been calling it Lida for days. It's because I'm an Eldama. Um, it's Luda. Oh, and all the rest, oh, wait a minute, I'm in the wrong place. He came down to Luda. Say it, Luda. There you go, Luda, Luda, that's ludicrous. There he found a man named Aeneas, and it says bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed, okay? 34, and Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you, rise and make your bed. I love that. Little housekeeping on the end of the healing, pretty cool. And then it says, and immediately he rose, just got up, boom, got out of bed, first time in eight years. And then it says, and all the residents of what? Luda. Luda. And Sharon, I think that's how you pronounce that, saw him. And then it says, and they turned to the Lord. Amen. Father, open our hearts and minds this morning as we examine and 
apply this word, God. Um, I know that you have a special time set aside for us here during this time of teaching. Uh, I know that it was a special time for me and study and uh, first time in a long time I haven't turned to any commentaries. Lord, you were speaking directly to me and I, I'm, I'm really, that is just the most encouraging, exciting form of study there is. And Lord, now you aim to open your word and share your word with these folks here, Lord. And so please do so, Lord, apply it to their hearts. May it take deep seed in their lives, God. Uh, we do not want to be mere hearers of the word. We want to be doers. That's what you command. And that's the, the nature of the true believer, Lord, is to be someone who hears and does, applies through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so speak to us now. Keep us from getting distracted and focused on this great moment, Lord, this moment of reflecting upon your truth, studying it, applying it. Holy Spirit, have your way. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. In typical fashion, we'll begin with 32. Focus in on it. I have no slides for you because they're so sketchy here. When we move over there, I think we're going to upgrade our computer and, and try to have slides and stuff like that. But, you know, you've got a Bible in front of you, and that's really what you need to look at. So look there at 32. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived in Luda. You know, Peter was the leader of the apostles in Jerusalem. Uh, that's where the apostles pretty much headquartered at. That's where the church at Jerusalem was. And, and the apostles were exercising um, biblical authority over the church as a whole, even though it was spread from that particular place. And, and Peter was really sort of the leader of the apostles. He was, uh, and even throughout the ministry of Jesus, he was kind of the, the right-hand guy, and then leadership trickled down from there. And so he was really kind of the leader of the apostles in Jerusalem. Now, apparently he had been sent, uh, well, not apparently, but Obviously, we see it in our text, he had been sent to the coastal, the coastal cities that Philip preached the gospel at, okay? Uh, when he went into Luda and these areas and he went over into this territory, he was basically sent to these coastal cities. And, and these are the places where Philip, the evangelist who had preached in Samaria, these are the places that he went after Samaria. He found himself in Azotos and he went preaching throughout the whole community up there and all the way up the coastline. Now we see Peter has been sent by the apostles to this region. He's been sent there. Why? Why was Peter sent there by the apostles? He was sent there to examine, examine the fruit. Some report had made its way back to the apostles at Jerusalem that the church was growing in these coastal cities. And so he went to examine the fruit. Let's check it out. We've heard word. He went to establish a link between the governing authority of the church, which was back in Jerusalem with the apostles. Okay, so even though he had churches, Christian churches, one church at this point, right, there really is true universally one church, but he had all these scattered churches and communities where Christians were, they were still governed, as I said earlier, by the apostles at Jerusalem. And so he went to this place to examine the fruit. He went there to establish an authoritative link to the apostles back in Jerusalem. What the apostles did not want 
is denominationalism yet. They didn't want that. They wanted one church that was governed by one body of apostles with individual elders and people like that and leaders and deacons that were appointed in these churches. And so he goes there to examine the fruit. He goes there to establish a link to say, hey, the governing authority is back in Jerusalem. And then he also goes to make a report, to record what he sees, to journal, to write things down, to gather experiences and info and, and, you know, and testimonies in these things. And he puts together this report to bring back. Okay, And we see that later on in the narrative. So he goes to a, examine, to establish, and then essentially to make a report. As I said back in... Acts 8.40, he didn't mention the verse, but I'm saying it now, 8.40, we did learn that Philip preached the gospel in Azotos and in all the other towns up to Caesarea. And actually, Philip planted himself in Caesarea and, and planted a church there and began to do ministry in that area. He pretty much stayed in that area. Now, the fact that Peter went really shows that Philip's preaching was successful, that the Holy Spirit um, tended to his attended his preaching, that the Holy Spirit was working through the gospel message that he was preaching. Why? Because there were converts. There were people who were, you know, cut to the heart. There were people that were realizing that Jesus Christ was their only hope, their only Messiah. And a lot of these people were Hellenists. But his preaching was very, very successful. Not because he was inherently gifted or a talented communicator or any of those things, but because the Holy Spirit worked through his work, blessed his ministry, blessed the words that he spoke, blessed his proclamation of the gospel. And we see Peter there examining it, which shows that essentially Philip's preaching worked. There were people converted. The message got back to Jerusalem. And very interesting. It's, this is very similar to what happened back in Acts 8.14, where Peter and John were sent from Jerusalem to Samaria to check out and support Philip's ministry. Uh, you might remember back when we were really sort of, maybe the second time we heard about Philip, he was in Samaria and preaching the gospel and all kinds of people. There was like a revival that broke out there. And word got to Jerusalem and then the apostles sent Peter with John this time, not just Peter alone, but with John. And they went and, you know, prayed that the Christians there would receive the Holy Spirit and did these really phenomenal things and did some ministry and came back and gave a report. So this is very similar to what happened before. It's kind of a repeat of that in a different region. Now, as Peter traveled throughout or through the region, he came to a town called Luda. Luda was slightly inland, um, not right on the water. It was situated between Ozotos and Yopa. We call it Joppa, but it's Yopa. Uh, these towns were at the southern point of the region of Philistia, uh, which is where the ancient Philistines once lived and ruled. We've all heard of them, how David did battle with them over and over in Goliath and all that. This is that coastal region. That's Philistia, that whole region there. That's where these cities and towns um, are. And so that's where he's at. He's in Luda, which is in Philistia, in this area where the Philistine once roamed and ruled. And there were Christians there. If you notice how it says, the saints who lived in Luda, if you look at the verse again, the saints who lived in Luda, there were Christians there. Philip's preaching was effective. And I think there's another possibility for how there were Christians there, probably not entirely through Philip's preaching, although I think that was the majority, but also through the scattering that took place when 
um, you know, back in like Acts, Acts, I keep saying eggs, it's just weird. Back in eggs one, eggs two, eggs three, I like four eggs normally, um, that's too many. Uh, back in Acts 8, 1, how's that? How about if I just slow down and enunciate? Bruce is amening that. Do I need to enunciate more? <laughs> Not if I keep saying eggs chapter 8. Um, back in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, I'll go Ben Stein slow, we saw the church scattered from Jerusalem. I mean, this massive persecution broke out at the hands of Saul, the persecutor. Remember, he was that Pharisee and he was that persecutor. And so the church sort of exploded and went in all directions. The text says it went throughout the whole region, up north, to the east, south, to the west. It went in all directions. And so it, it could be that some of these believers in Luda were part of the scattering. I think that uh, to be fair to Scripture, because it talks, sort of illustrates the effectiveness of Philip's preaching through revival in Samaria and stuff, I think it's fair to say that the people were there because of his preaching and because there were some there that were from the scattering, that diaspora or whatever you want to call it. So there were Christians there, bottom line, there were Christians in Luda. Whatever the case may be, they were there. And Peter was sent there to examine, link, and report. Now look at what happened in verse 33. There he, Peter, found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was, and he lists what he was, he was paralyzed. While in Luda, Peter came across a paralyzed man, just said it, named Aeneas. The text says here that Aeneas had been bedridden for eight years. Eight long years this guy was confined to his bed. Can you imagine what that must be like? Okay, he was a man, it says, so he was not a child. He wasn't eight years old and spent his whole life in bed. This was a man, which means that he probably had a pretty active, normal life at one time and then was stricken with paralyzation. Maybe he was injured. Maybe he was wounded. Uh, maybe uh, he got uh, some sort of a disorder or disease that paralyzed him. He lost the use of his extremities. And so he was confined to his bed for eight years. I can't even imagine what that must have been like. Because I was confined to a couch for one month with pneumonia. And just text my wife and ask her what that experience was for her. Shut up. Quit whining. I mean, it was just... One month, I went from like, you know, hey, to, <coughs> you know, for one month, and, and I was a disaster. I mean, I, I couldn't even handle it. I, I, was, I couldn't wait. To, I had cabin fever. This guy right here, eight years of lying in bed. You know, they have to roll you when you're in the hospital. They have to roll you around and stuff because you get bed sores. I don't know if they even knew those things back then. This guy was just confined to his bed. How miserable this must have been crazy now question that comes to mind is how did peter cross paths with him okay this guy was confined to his bed he wasn't you know out and about he wasn't in public he 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 wasn't like the lame beggar we just heard about who somehow was brought to the beautiful gate at the temple gates and you know begged for alms you know and asked for donations i mean that guy was out and about um, but this particular guy was bedridden. So how did, you know, he wasn't like that guy. How did Peter cross paths with him? He was confined to his bed. He was immobile. Uh, it could be that Aeneas was the relative of one of the believers there, maybe. Right? Uncle Aeneas. 
poor guy's been in bed for eight years. Peter's in town. We've heard about the miracles and things that, that he has done back in Samaria and in Jerusalem. And, whoa, he's in town. Uh, not like Benny Hinn's in town, and we all drag people down to the civic center where he is, because I think those are not miracles. But Peter's in town. The Christians knew who he was. He was the governing authority, the highest-ranking leader in the church, and he came to town. Maybe this guy was, Aeneas was a relative, and some believers said, Peter's in town. We know that he works miracles. We've heard. We've never seen it, you know. Let's bring him to Aeneas. Maybe he was Uncle Aeneas. Maybe he was the neighbor of one of the believers. You know, the believers, maybe a believer lived next door to this guy and, and knew who he was and visited him here and there and checked in on him and and knew Peter was in town and wanted to take him to him. I mean, we don't, we don't know. It could be that uh, maybe just some of the believers, instead of being a neighbor or a relative, maybe just some of the believers were aware of him. Maybe they had a little prayer ministry going with their little church there, and they went over and visited him as we often do, you know, and we go to someone's house and pray over people and try to love them and try to encourage them in the Lord, no matter what their predicament is. It's really hard. Um, we really don't know... Um, but they crossed paths. Peter was made aware of them. Another thing that strikes me, probably even in a more critical way, is that Peter was there with specific objectives and responsibilities. He had come to do specific things. His mission, as I said, was to examine, establish, and basically generate a report to bring back to the apostles. But here we see him presented with an opportunity to go hands-on, to do something in addition to what he had come to do, which really strikes me. When he came to do something specific, and yet somebody comes to him and says, we know of a man that you could visit, that you could add to your ministry that you could make him a part of your journey and a part of your mission here. It's very, very interesting. Now, the question I have for us is how often does this happen to us? How often is it that we are set to do something in particular, whether it be ministry-related or life-related, and then we're, in a second, in a blink of an eye, presented with an opportunity to do something in addition to what we had planned to do? How often does that happen to us? It's happening here in our text, where it happened here a couple thousand years ago. I have to tell you, it happens pretty often to me. Maybe that's because I'm a pastor and I'm in ministry. Um, I don't know. And how often is it that, you know, I'm thinking through what I've got to do. I've got something in particular that I'm aiming to do. And then, bring phone rings. Hello? Ah! Oh, boy, that's going to be interesting. Must be having an appendicitis. Appendicitis, ah! Appendicitis. Go to the hospital, ah! Go to the hospital. You know, I mean, it happens, right? Phone rings, you get a text. You know, one of the most exciting ones is, you know? If you don't want to get these additional opportunities or be bothered by people, don't put your address on Facebook because they'll just, bing dong! Hi, you're Pastor Phil. Let me get him. <laughs> no, right? 
Uh, yes, I am Pastor Phil. Well, ah, oh, it was you on the phone. Oh, ah, okay, all right, you know. I mean, literally, right? I mean, these things happen to me all the time. People call, people text, people email. That's almost as fast as snail mail now. Don't do that. Um, or somebody shows up, you know, I'll get a notification immediately or somebody will call or an elder or something. I've got something I'm doing. And then all of a sudden I've got to make a hospital visit, you know, and that happens all the time. I've got to make a hospital visit. Life and ministry can be very surprising and very unpredictable no matter how we plan, no matter how we draw out our schedule. Is laying out a calendar and a schedule a good thing? Are you kidding me? Yeah, it's good stewardship. I have no idea what that is because I usually don't do it. I get a call. You're supposed to be here. I knew that, just making sure you're on top of it. But it doesn't matter how organized you are or whatever. It just, things come in, do they not? Things happen. People happen. Events happen. Experiences are generated, no matter how we plan. It's amazing to me. And I believe that the main cause behind those things is the Holy Spirit. Wait a minute. Yeah. I believe the main cause behind those things is the Holy Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit is always doing more than we can see. The Holy Spirit is always at work on multiple levels. The Holy Spirit is the true and great multitasker, is he not? I don't know about you, but I can barely handle one thing at a time. If I put two on there, they're both going to be ham and egg. Three, they'll get done, but they're ugly. I can really only do one thing at a time. But what we fail to realize is that the Holy Spirit is omnipresent, working at multiple levels in multitudes of people, in multitudes of churches. What you can't see, he is at, I mean, he is at work. I, I suspect that if we could see more of his work, we'd be less inclined to do any work ourselves. You know? we knew who the elect were, we certainly wouldn't preach the gospel to anyone because we'd already know who they are, wouldn't we? We would. We just do not function that way. We get one thing in front of us and we get tunnel vision, we get horse blinders, and we're focused and we're going after that target. We've got the scope on it, the laser dots on it. We're ready to pull the trigger and then somebody steps in front of the line of fire. And I believe it's the Holy Spirit that sends that person that event. Sometimes it's a catastrophe, whatever it may be. The Holy Spirit is always at work on multiple levels. He is the great multitasker. When we engage in our tasks, life, ministry, we tend to do it with tunnel vision. We go in with horse blinders. Our eyes are fixed on the target and they don't shift off the target unless the Holy Spirit puts Events or people in the line of fire which focused, causes us to focus on them or the event or whatever it is. Life and ministry are much like my Windows-based laptop. Some of you already know where I'm going with this. Oh, it's unpredictable. Yeah. I mean, I'll go into my laptop. 
I want to go in and write a sermon. I want to go in and surf the web. I want to go in and listen to music. I want to go in and dawdle on Facebook. Complete waste of my time. I want to go in. I go in with an objective. I open the laptop. I turn it on. It goes to the little thing where it says Windows. And it opens up. And then I try to do something, and I can't do it. Why? Because the computer has a problem. Virus. And all I'm thinking is, how long is it going to take me to get to Facebook? I've got to get through this. Malware, spyware, HP, whatever it is. So often I'll have a task that I want to do. There's something, an objective, and I'll open it, and I'll try to get to work. But guess what? Before I can get to the target, I've got to deal with a lot of other things. I've got to figure out what this problem is. Okay? Very similar life and ministry. Mac people don't have this problem, which means that the Holy Spirit is not active in a work at their lives. No, I'm just kidding. He is in a greater way. They just don't. They open it up and they go to work. I came to do something and I have no problem with doing it. Me, I'm like, piece of junk. Where's Andrew? Save me. He's, a, he's, he's an IT guy, just so you know. Hit him up. He pays you to work on computers too. Just kidding. Now, he's a good guy. He saved me like a couple weeks ago because I got jacked up. I was trying to write a sermon and it just wasn't happening. But isn't life and ministry like that? Oh, in order to get to the target, I've got to now deal with these, what I call pop-up experiences or pop-up people. It's challenging. It's hard. It's difficult. Unforeseen things, additions, off-target stuff is indicative to our lives and ministries. But how often do we call those things a pain in the caboose? How often do we complain about the delays? You hear me? Oh my gosh. It's Shelly again. She's got those problems and the kids are bananas. And, and here she is on the phone. Here she is at my house, here she is at my office, here she is at, how do they find you at the mall? You're shopping. Hey! Hi. You're doing a prayer session at the mall. People are walking around you, right? And you get out of there and you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. I was about to go into Spencer's. Thank God they came. <laughs> right? Right there, it's like, praise the Lord. You go in there, oh, I shouldn't be in here. I don't want to look in there, you know, flesh, you know. It's just amazing to me. But how often do we complain about those people? Do we complain about those events? How often do we hold the wrong type of attitude and behave in a way that is ungodly when these things come? call them a pain in the butt we call them a pain in the caboose we're like man i've, I've got something i've got to do I, i'm I, i'm trying to get from point a to point b but sally dropped in and chewed up all my time with all her needs and all her problems and i couldn't go do what i needed to do well, I was on my way to this place and then I got a call to go to the hospital to visit this sick person and that threw off my schedule, my goals, the mission that I had, the mission that God gave me. 
I'd like to correct and rebuke this type of thinking by submitting to you that people are not a computer virus, that people are not malware, people are not spyware, people are not distractions to your life in ministry. They are not additional plates in your circus act. We're all spinning plates. Dun, 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 dun. Oh man, they just put another plate on there and it's a person. On the contrary, people have been strategically placed within the chronology of your life and ministry by our omniscient God. Sally showed up at the precise time God planned for her to show up. But you believe that she was a distraction, an addition, a speed bump, a threat to your schedule and mission. Now, I have to admit that I tend to look at people this way and to respond to them that way at times. It's not because I don't love them or care about them, but it's because I tend to get tunnel vision. We all have so many things that we have to get done on a daily basis. Isn't it overwhelming at times? And I'll be the first to admit that, that I'll have specific goals in mind and, and this is going to be a good day because I'm almost there. Bring Ah, hospital. No. No hospital. Get well. I'll pray for you. Amen. And then I'm there. And then I feel like such a fool. How often I've grumbled against people. How often I've labeled them as a spyware or virus. People tend to be viruses, don't they? They just don't go away. Why can't that person just, they keep coming back to me at the craziest times over the same thing. They don't get it. It's like the truth goes and then they show up when I'm trying to do something. I have complained about pop-up people messing with my schedule and mission. I think we're all guilty of this to some degree. The question is, why do we behave like this? We do it because we're self-centered and selfish. We want to do life and ministry on our terms according to our timelines and schedules. And we expect and even command that the Holy Spirit show up when we reach our destination and we're ready to go. Do we not do that? God gives us ministry and schedules and events and things that are out there on the horizon, things that we must do, tasks. There's no doubt. He tasks us. He's a gracious taskmaster. Master. He gives us these things to do. Oh, it's so challenging. Why do we behave like this? Because we're selfish, because we're self-centered. While it is easy for us to acknowledge and proclaim that God has set our goals and called for us to do this or that or to be here 
or there, it is just as easy for us to dismiss the things that happen in between as not from God. God gave me specific things to do, no more, no less. Give me my daily bread. What is this intrusion? Certainly it cannot be of God. And I would imagine there's some variations out there that aren't from God, that are from the devil, that are distractions, that are intentional. But we don't want to call people that. It's easy to. Such a a frustrating thing. My selfishness, my self-centeredness, my narrow focus, my blinders. It's easy for me to acknowledge the goals and things that he's put out there, but for me to dismiss the things that come during the process, during the journey from point A to point B, it's easy for me to dismiss those things as not being from God, which means they don't get the level of attention that they need to get. Maybe they get no attention. Maybe they're dismissed. Maybe they're cast out. Maybe they're thrown away. Maybe they're answered by, sure, I'll pray for you or whatever. Just a quick slapper answer. We do this. It's easy for us to cast him out, and yet is, isn't God the keeper of all time and space? Does God's presence not fill the earth and the heavens above? Does God not know the number of hairs upon the heads of seven billion people? We act as if these things aren't of God or from God or potentially that way, and yet he is the keeper of all time and space. He is the sovereign almighty who plans all things, uses all things for his glory, even the hard things. You see, you must understand that the chronology of your life has been carefully laid out with every detail and experience, both good and bad, every event and every person within your chronology has been put there for a reason we need to realize this and begin to view every pop-up as an opportunity from god to do what the will of god to accomplish his purposes and to be filled with his joy you may think and feel that pop-up people and events are nothing more than a delay to your life and mission But Romans 8.28 says, paraphrased, they are meant for your good and for the good of those who love God and are called what? According to His purposes. Wow. Think about these things. How many opportunities have you missed because of tunnel vision? How many? How many times have you had goals, ministry, life, family, whatever, I'm going from point A to point B, stuff came in between, you jettisoned those things, missed them. How many times has that happened to you? How about this? How many opportunities have you missed because of your unwavering commitment to completing only the assignment? Don't distract me. I'm on task. I'm going to get it done. How many opportunities have you sacrificed on the altar of personal leisure? You hear me? 
we are so prone when we're on task for work-related things, ministry-related things, some of those life things. We, we, we actually tend to go ahead and engage those things as they come. But when we're in the mode of pursuing leisure, we'll fight tooth and nail to avoid, to jettison, to reject, to move. I'm going on vacation. I can't. I can't. I can't deal with her right now. I, I leave, in, I leave in, in four weeks. I can't do it today. I leave tomorrow. I, I, can't, I can't make that call. I'm, I'm, I'm in vacation mode. I'm going to play golf. Hit a little ball around. I'm going shopping. She can wait. I'll go talk to her with my coach, new coach purse. Right? I mean, we will. I, I like coach purses. It's cool. We will, we will, only if you get them at like those discount places. Anyways, we will sometimes engage in those things if they're work-related, ministry-related. We'll go ahead, and, okay, man, it's kind of a pain in the caboose, but I'm going to go ahead and deal with her. I'm going to deal with him or whatever. When it comes to leisure, phone's off. No text. No calls. Don't mess with my leisure. You see, in Luda... Peter came face to face with an opportunity to either add ministry to his assigned objectives or to reject ministry so that he could do exactly what he came to do. Verse 34 shows us that Peter embraced the opportunity to add ministry to his pre-existing objectives. You see it? He could have went. Somebody will eventually get to Aeneas. Something will happen. It'll all pan out. Somebody else will visit him. I got specific things I've got to do. I, I can't, if, if I do this, I'm already spinning these plates. Well, he embraced the opportunity according to verse 34. It shows us that he cared for pop-up people. It shows us that Peter was flexible and ready to do whatever the Holy Spirit led him to do at any given moment. Once informed of the situation, Peter did not hesitate to go where Aeneas lived and to stand at his bedside. That's what he did. I don't think he even pondered anything other than, I must go and minister to this man. I got all these other things I got to do. Look at 34. Peter's at his bedside. Imagine with me. Clay walls, thatch roof, probably a two-story, makeshift bed, probably some people around. A man who's been bedridden for eight years, Lying there perfectly still. Can't move. Peter stood at his bedside and said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. Peter called him by name. He said, Aeneas. For whatever reason, it looks like it would appear that Peter had to first get Aeneas' attention. Maybe he was asleep, needed to be woken up. 
Maybe he was all kind of wrapped up in a little, you know, distracted sort of emotional pity party about his predicament. How often do we find ourselves there? Maybe he was in the middle of complaining to some family members or something about his predicament and how bad it was. Maybe this little conversation between him, between him and somebody else was going on and he was in this pity party thing and, and Peter walks in and stands next to his bedside. Maybe he was so distracted by what was going on that he couldn't even tell that Peter was there. Or maybe he was just staring at the ceiling and when Peter walked up and stood at his bedside, he just said, I may ask, and he looked at him. And we don't know how it played out. It's pretty interesting. Peter got his attention. Look at what he said next and then what happened. It's in 34. He said, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And then it says, and immediately he rose. I want you to take into consideration the following things from that particular verse right there. When Peter came in, he did not engage Aeneas in conversation. He didn't walk into the room and locate him on the bed and walk over and strike up a conversation. He did not ask him anything. He didn't say, yeah, I heard about your situation and, uh, and, and guess what, dog? I'm here to do something about it. Sweet. He didn't say how long you've been in your bed or, you know, people doing the rotisserie thing, flipping you around so you don't get the bed sores. I mean, he didn't, he didn't, he didn't say anything to him. He didn't ask him any questions. He didn't engage him in conversation. Peter didn't ask Aeneas Again, he didn't engage him in conversation. He didn't ask him if he'd like to be healed. Do you see it? Hey, I, I'm, I'm Simon Peter. Prefer to be called Peter. I'm from the apostle group over there in Jerusalem. I got miraculous healing powers. Would you like to be healed today? He didn't say that. Peter did not ask Aeneas if he had faith. You got faith, brother? A little bit? You got something that I can work with here? You're a believer, aren't you? You've repented of your sin. You trust Jesus, right? You got a little bit of something I can work with here. He didn't ask him that, did he? No. He didn't ask him if he had faith. He didn't ask him if he wanted to be healed. He didn't engage him in conversation. And look what else it says. Peter healed Aeneas in the name of Jesus Christ. He didn't summon some other god. He didn't strike crystals together and rub him with magic potion. He didn't rub a genie thing. What do you want? He didn't turn to some form of religion. or He healed the man in the name of Jesus Christ. Why? Because there's healing in the name of Jesus Christ. Only. If you look at Acts, every time Peter heals someone, it's in the name of Jesus Christ. Because that's the name above all names where healing power is. 
I heal you in the name of Jesus Christ. The name above all names. The name of the Lord. The name of the true healer. Peter told Aeneas to rise. See it? Rise is anastemi. That's resurrection language, friends. Anastemi, resurrect. Aeneas had resurrection verbiage, resurrection word, breathed, spoken in the name of Jesus over him. In the name of Jesus Christ, resurrect. Resurrection. Not from death, but from paralyzation. Take notice, too, to how Peter told Aeneas to make his bed. He's not going to be needing that anymore. Yeah, you can mess it up when you go to bed tonight. Make it in the morning. Your bed hasn't been made in eight years. We ain't going back. Get up and make it. Notice how Aeneas said nothing. Not a word. Not a, are you sure I can stand? Not a, thank you? Nothing. Notice the effect and power of the miracle performed in the name of Jesus. It says, he slowly got up, and you could hear all his bones going, and he was okay. Oh, actually, it says he immediately rose. Amen. Now look at 35. This is huge. Huge. And all the residents of Luda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. After being healed, Aeneas put himself on display for the glory of God. He may have gone on tour, walking from village to village, making the journey throughout Luda and then to Sharon, which was a neighboring community, a neighboring town. He may have just, because he had new legs and new functions, he hadn't experienced these things for eight years, immediately got up, immediately Praising God, I would think, goes out and probably goes on tour and begins to show people what had happened to him. Or maybe people flooded his home to see him. We heard about what happened. Is it real? There he is, you know, 1001, 1002, in the living room. See, 1000, it is real. Look at him. He's doing jumping. What are those? They're jumping jacks. Maybe he invented the jumping jack. 
the text says, all the residents of Luda and Sharon, not one-third, not two-thirds, all. Lots of people saw him. And then it says they what? They turned to the Lord. The miracle had a massive effect on Aeneas' community as well as nearby Sharon. People were blown away to the point of surrendering to Jesus. Now, I believe that the believers in those communities may have used the miracle to affirm what they had already been gossiping. Remember, when the church scattered, the believers went about gossiping the gospel, talking about the gospel in daily life, proclaiming Jesus, proclaiming what had happened to them, the miracle of new birth and these things. They were out gossiping it. And there's no doubt that those who were saved through Philip's preaching were gossiping the gospel as well. So you had a whole lot of Christians in this community that were talking about Jesus at the markets, at their homes, in their neighborhoods, at parent-teacher conferences. Wherever it was that they congregated, the believers were gossiping, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. It's all they could talk about. So much to the point that by the time Peter rolled into town and performed the miracle. The people of Luda and Sharon were already ripe for the harvest. The miracle became the tipping point. We've been telling you, I can hear the Christians saying this, we've been telling you for the last three to four years that salvation and healing are in the name of Jesus alone. Here is your proof. Look at Aeneas. He was confined to his bed for eight years, and now he walks before you. Look at him. He's right there. Go touch him. That's him. You know who he was. What we've been saying is true. Here's your physical proof, not to mention how many things we've done in the community and served you. Look at him. Another thing that we must not miss is that there were divine, obviously divine purposes behind the pop-up ministry opportunity that Peter was presented with. God had five objectives to accomplish through it. We see it in the text. Number one is obvious, miraculously heal Aeneas. Here's an opportunity, Peter. Here's a crippled man of eight years in his bed. Here's, there's the opportunity. He needs to be healed. Miraculously heal Aeneas was a divine objective from God by God. Number two, use the miracle to turn many sinners to the Lord Jesus Christ. Right there in the text. Number three, add to the church. Christ said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And guess what? I'll use pop-up opportunities to build it too. I'll bring things in from the side and from above. You've got your schedules. I'm building my church, and I'll bring things in between. He was adding to his church. When a person gets saved, they are added to the church universal, and I hope and pray they're added to the church local, that they engage in covenant with some group, with some body of believers. That's a divine objective. 
He's building his church. Number four, to encourage. Another objective behind this opportunity, this thing that happened, encourage and fortify the church by displaying his divine power. What was God doing? Displaying his divine power through the miracle to the church that was already there. How easy it is for the church to get complacent and comfortable and relaxed. And sometimes God's got to come in and rock our worlds with something. In this case, it was a fat miracle. Oh, I'm back. It's getting a little off track there. A little too much leisure. A little too. One of his divine objectives was to encourage and fortify the church through it. And five, the thing above all things was to bring glory to his name. To bring glory to his name. How many people were added to the church that day? How many people transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, from cursing God to praising God, from de-glorifying God to glorifying God? That's God's final purpose in all things, is to bring glory to his name. Those are five things, five objectives, application. In light of these truths, how might, how might we begin to look at and respond to pop-up experiences in people? How might we begin to look at those things, to view those things, those things, those people, those events, whatever they are, that occasionally invade our lives and ministries? Are they nothing more than distractions? Are they nothing more than speed bumps to slow us down? Or could they be divinely appointed opportunities to do the will of God, accomplish his purposes, and be filled with his joy? And if Peter were here today, he'd say, that's it. That's, that's what he experienced. That's what Peter experienced firsthand, did he not? That's it. It's an opportunity from him to do his will, to accomplish his purposes. I'm a vessel he uses, and when I obey and do what he calls me to do, joy unlimited. Another thing to consider is the objectives that God has for each of his children. Incredibly, they are the same objectives that I just mentioned. God's objective was to heal you. If you are in Christ Jesus, then God has healed your tattered, unregenerate soul. He saved you. And that is a miracle. That is the greatest miracle. Maybe God has also healed you physically. Does he not perform miracles through surgery and medicine? God's objective was to heal you if you're in Christ. God's objective is to use the miracles of your spiritual and maybe even physical healing to impact the people of this community and beyond, just as it happened in the text. His objective is to use the gospel and your example to lead sinners 
to the Lord. Jesus didn't save and heal you for only you. He did so with the purpose of making you salt and light in the world. Do not hide under a basket. Put yourself on display. Gossip the gospel and show others what God has done for you. What are some practical ways? Through selfless, generous, charitable, merciful, holy living. To use you and the miracles that he's performed in your life to impact others. God's objective is to use you to add to the church. Matthew 28, 19 to 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. We're all disciple makers. We're supposed to be. That command is for every believer, not just the apostles, not just pastors, not just elders, not just deacons, not just children, children's workers, not just hospitality people. It's for all of God's people. You can go out and gossip the gospel and, and show the gospel through your good works and, and and God will take those things and work through those things and, and attend them with the Holy Spirit. And, and you'll actually see people get won to Christ through that. And at that point, you're being used by God to add to his church. Was Peter not used by God to add to the church? Did God not use Aeneas to add to the church? Of course he did. God's objective is to use you to encourage and fortify the church through displaying his transformative power in your life. Precisely what he did through Aeneas. The Holy Spirit, friends, is in you. He is changing you. He is molding you into the image of Jesus Christ. And God's objective is to display this miraculous work to other believers so that they can be encouraged, fortified, and built up. This is one of the reasons why we should never forsake the assembly when you ditch Sunday worship, and I'm not talking about those who are ill or those who got called into work or those who, you know, take a vacation with their family. God affords us some leisure in those things. We've got some grace room there. But I'm talking about intentionally ditching the assembly because you're either too lazy, too ill-equipped, too unprepared, whatever it is. I just don't want to go today. I just, I just, I want time for me there are people there that consume me whatever these selfish reasons are we should never forsake the assembly when you ditch sunday worship and even other events you rob from your brothers and sisters you are a gift from god to them and when you ditch you withhold the gift of yourself from them. What is the greatest gift God ever gave to sinners like you and me? Is it treasure? Is it shelter? Is it possessions? Is it health? Is it heaven? No, it is himself in Christ Jesus. He, God, is our greatest possession, our greatest inheritance, our greatest gift. He gave himself to us in the person 
of Jesus. How did God show his love for us? He gave his only. He gave his only. He gave his only begotten son. John 3.16. How can we show love for our brothers and sisters? We must give ourselves to them. How can we give ourselves to them if we're not around, if we're not present? Cards and calls and emails and texts only go so far. How can we display the mighty transformative work of the Holy Spirit and build up the church if we're not present? We cannot. You can't encourage and fortify the church if you're not around. This is a huge, huge problem in this church and other churches. I praise God for all of you here today. But some of us just have so, it's all seemingly impossible to commit to coming each week. Again, I am not referring to those things that come up. When you're not here, you are a gift from God. When you're not here, you withhold the gift of yourself and the work that God is doing in your life. You withhold that experience, that exposure from everyone else, and they need it. They need you. We need each other. Fifth, God's objective is to use you to bring glory to his name. Why did God save wretches like you and me? Did he do it because he loved us? Certainly. Did he do it because he desired to show us mercy? Certainly. Did he do it because he is good? Absolutely. But those aren't the only reasons why he saved us. He saved us for his namesake, for his glory. Psalm 23, 1-3 illustrates this so incredibly well. Listen to the things that God does for us just quickly and what the purpose behind them is. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He becomes our shepherd. To the point where we don't need anything else other than him. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He puts me, he leads me by still waters. He, he, he brings me into these areas where there's satisfaction and fulfillment, nourishment and peace. He does these things. He becomes your shepherd. You don't want anymore because he's satisfied your soul. He brings you into the places where the finest dining is happening and in relationship with him, the peace, the nourishment that he brings. It also says in three, he restores my soul. He also leads me in paths of righteousness. He leads me. He's my shepherd. He's my guide. He takes me down the right path. He does all these things for us. Why? For his namesake, his glory. What was behind this whole thing that played out with Aeneas? His glory. What was behind the healing of Aeneas? His glory. What was behind the pop-up opportunity for Peter? His glory. Why was Peter in, actually in Luda? For his glory. Glory, glory, glory. Sole Deo Gloria. Let's commit ourselves to embracing the pop-ups. Let's view them as ordained experiences, encounters, and opportunities to do the will of God, to accomplish his purposes, and to experience more of his joy. 
Let's put ourselves on display. Let's gossip the gospel and share God's miracles with others. Let's tell them about what he has done and doing in our lives. Let's commit ourselves to one another, to being present, to sharing our lives, to giving ourselves to one another, to building one another up. All of these things have been made possible through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's because of what he did that we can do any of these things at all. The Bible never, ever, ever starts with what we need to do. It always begins with what God has already done. In light of that, let's commit ourselves to obeying and living out what we've heard, not because we have to or out of some form of compulsion or desire to earn our way with God, but out of love for Him that flows from our understanding of what He has done for us in and through Christ Jesus. Amen.